I know it sounds implausible given the reputation of, of this man I'll discuss in a moment, but there's a story of Albert Einstein on a train. Everyone in his car recognized him. Most of us recognize him, know who Einstein was. But prior to the train leaving the station, the conductor made his routine inspection to ensure that each passenger had their tickets. The conductor noticed Einstein fumbling through his things, in his pockets, in his briefcase, amongst his papers. And when the conductor reached him, Einstein admitted that he lost his ticket and couldn't remember his stop. The conductor said, that's no problem, Mr. Einstein. We know who you are. And Einstein responded, I know who I am too, but I do not know where I am going. Do you know where you're going to? See, since coming to Cornerbrook Baptist, I've thought a lot about direction. Because every step we make in life changes our direction just a little bit. There's so many things that have happened to us, and you can look back on your life this morning and say, my direction changed at this moment in time. Or I went into a slow turn, and I began to change, and things began to change around me. Many people that I know and many churches that I know don't seem to have a clear objective at times. Probably among your friends, and maybe you're here today, and you say, I really don't have a clear direction. I just live for the moment. I live for each day. Your spiritual GPS is unplugged. You're programmed, I suppose, with faulty directional software. They rummage around in their journey through life, strangely perplexed as though something was missing, but the essential map they ought to have or the copy of their itinerary is missing. The result is wandering in a sort of an aimless existence, a hit or miss philosophy. There's no way to look at the only life that we get to live. How clear is your direction today? You see, our, our, our direction determines whether we reach our destination. It would be a real shock for people to expect to find eternal bliss, but only find they've missed the mark. And there's only one of two places we will eventually land, if you believe the Bible at all. In November 1975, 75 convicts started digging a secret tunnel designed to bring them up the other side of a wall, a Saltillo prison in northern Mexico. On April 18, 1976, it took them quite a few months to dig, didn't it? Guided by pure genius, they tunneled up into the nearby courtroom where many of them had originally been sentenced. The surprised judge returned all 75 of them to jail. And you can also say that they went there with longer sentences, naturally, because they attempted to break out. You see, if we wanted to point to one person, and you know where I'm going with this, who mastered the art of knowing their direction and their destination and keeping their direction clear, then it's got to be Jesus. And for that reason, I want to recommend, as you knew I would, that we would allow him to guide us. And on this road of life, I don't want an inexperienced guide. Follow just anybody today, and the Lord only knows where you'll end up, and I mean it literally. 
It's only the Lord who knows where you'll end up because we don't. And let me tell you about his sense of direction, how finely tuned it was, and how unerring Jesus was in his purpose. You talk about a purpose-driven life. Long before Rick Warren turned it into a bestseller, Jesus initiated that kind of an idea for us. Well, let me take you to, go to gospel today, Luke chapter 9, beginning to read at verse 51. And here's just a snippet in, the, in time in the life of Jesus. As the time approached for him to be taken up into heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. That's such a wonderful phrase. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. Amen. You see, my purpose today is not merely to follow Jesus' footsteps, but to examine why he walked where he did and how we can learn from the instruction that he offered on his way. There's some discrimination in this passage, and you've caught it all, all already. Jesus is turning towards Jerusalem. The Samaritans don't want him to visit because of where his destination is. Have you ever been held back because of where your destination is? Have you ever been discriminated against because you're on your way to follow Jesus, but other people don't really see how you should or why you should? I have. Direction's important for us. We've all had times when we've missed the mark and failed to do what God wants us to do. We probably felt the shame of failure when our testimony was not as effective as we wanted it to be. And we may, we may not have been guilty of the same crimes as King David was in the Old Testament, but we've been through things where we've, where we've been convicted in our souls of having made a mess of things. Sometimes human beings do that. At other times, we can see no hope for tomorrow because today is so cloudy. Direction can be hard to find in thick fog. Imagine waking up as David did. Waking up with the guilt of having planned the murder of one of, the, one of his loyal soldiers in his army. Imagine how David's soul must have felt the inner conflict as that man's wife now occupied a place inside of his palace and a favored place. How could David even function as, as a husband with the woman named Bathsheba when in fact he had lusted for her, he'd stolen her, he'd violated her, and then widowed her? How's that for losing your sense of direction? David, the same man who made elaborate preparations for constructing a magnificent house of God, comes to us in Scripture out of a life where he's a peeping Tom, He's an adulterer, and he's a murderer. Pretty nasty stuff. To top it all off, he's referred to in the scriptures as being a man after God's own heart, and it would almost suggest that David must have wrote that about himself. It surely can't be God's estimation of him. Look at the mess he's made of things. Is it possible that that piece of scripture, of scripture is inspired by the Spirit? I'm here to tell you today that the relationship that David had with God became strong again and their friendship is accurately reported. 
I believe David was forgiven because his repentance was always greater than his sin. Like ours. We already know that grace is greater than our sin. We sing it. Grace that is greater than all our sin. One of, one of our common hymns. The actual phrase which, which praises daily so, David so, so very highly is Acts chapter 13 and 22, quoted from 1 Samuel 13, as the rationale is given for David being chosen Israel's second king. He raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. God worked with David. He chastened him. He punished him with mighty blows. But I believe the Almighty stayed with him because he was contrite. Direction demands contrition. Never abandon his direction. You see, if you fail while you're walking towards God, and it's possible, I've seen it happen, God will restore you if your heart is open to his voice and if you're willing to accept the chastening hand of God. Direction can be reestablished. See, we shouldn't be dumb enough today to think that we can wander into all kinds of wrongdoing and sin sinfulness, let the enemy use us, and then easily find our way back to God and, and be faithful. David came back by one reason. He came back by God's grace. God placed this boy in a key position to make him a royal descendant of the one who would become the Messiah. I've been around long enough to know that there are plenty of testimonies that are better regarded as tra tragedies where people played fast and loose with things in this world or squandered the grace of God by feeding on the food that was put into the troughs for the hogs. And be warned today that some prodigals don't make it home. But the ones that do are those who've never lost their sense of direction. The boy in Luke chapter 15 recalled his father. He turned his contrite heart towards the place where he knew his father lived. In this boy's life, direction was everything. He found it. Down through the years of ministry that I've spent, I've watched quite a number of people change direction. And sadly, I've seen a few lose their direction. Never refined it. I've seen people willingly lose themselves in a strange town with strange people and adopt strange behaviors. I've broken the sad news of their end. I've seen it happen to pastors. I've seen it happen to pastors' kids, and deacons' kids, and Sunday school teachers' kids. I've seen it happen to whosoever will. I've looked at the ruin of homes. I've looked at the ruin of lives as directionless people did directionless things. And in the final, final analysis, it took a medical examiner to literally sift through the ashes to determine if a human being had, had lost their lives. And in the picture you're seeing, someone wanted to have a little fun, a pointless quest for a little harmless fun, as they say. People deserve direction. People need direction, and it is the task of the Church of Jesus Christ to point people in a good direction. Your neighbors deserve a good direction. Your children deserve a good direction.
We deserve to know a good destination. And perhaps even people here today, you need to be prodded. And if I can do that, I'll do it. You need to be prodded to chart a course and begin walking towards something and someone who gives ultimate meaning. You see, my title today, I said, is really the line from a song. As soon as I mentioned it to Brian McHugh this morning, he knew the year in which it became a hit and who sang it. That's I sort of expected. It's been sung by Di uh, Diana Ross and Mariah Carey. And I took the course first. It said, do you know where you're going to? Do you like the things that life is showing you? And some of you are playing it in your mind, aren't you? Where are you going to? Do you know? But then the song takes a little more of a somber tone. The lyrics get tinged with, with regret. And questions that are asked become a little more probing. And says this. Do you get what you're hoping for? When you look behind you, there's no open doors. What are you hoping for? Do you know? And the second verse of the song gets even more pointed. It openly declares that something has been lost and strongly suggests there's no getting it back. You see, when Solomon looked at the whole enterprise of life and declared it to be meaningless, he said vanity, says the preacher. He could have said it no better than the song as it reflects on a direction that didn't lead him to the destination he thought he should go. Here's what it says. You can almost hear Diana Ross's voice. Now looking back at all we planned. We let so many dreams just slip through our hands. Why must we wait so long before we'll see how sad the answers to these questions can be? Do you know where you're going to? To catch the regret? See, those, who, those of us who've been Christians for a long time, those for whom it is a life reality, we have to constantly check our direction and make mid-course course corrections. Some of us now are second and third generation Christians. Some may even be fourth. Right here among us today. We have a legacy, we say, of being led by the Spirit of God. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. And the things that I'm saying now, it's the language of our past. It's our pedigree, if you will. But every generation as to seek God for themselves. And just how well have we set our bearings? Are we dialed into a destination? Are our, our faces, like the face of Jesus, resolutely set towards an immediate goal and our eyes on the ultimate goal? Jesus knew he had to go to Jerusalem because the time was getting short when he would be received back up into heaven. And the word that's used is so powerful, he set his eyes resolutely towards Jerusalem. That's a powerful word, to be resolute. Up to his death a couple of years ago, Stanley Meisler wrote for the Los Angeles Times Magazine as a foreign affairs correspondent. I read some of his works. He wrote a brilliant profile of, of Boutros Boutros Ghali, who was the first African Secretary General of the United Nations. You would know, he's from your country, Mary. His name always intrigued me, but on closer scrutiny, I discovered why he had more than a passing interest in politics. 
His grandfather, whose name was Boutrous Ghali, the only Christian prime minister of Egypt, was shot by an assassin in 1910. Cairo crowds hailed as Muslim killer, but the family did not intend anyone to forget the grandfather. They adopted his given name, Boutros, which if you transfer it into our language, it means Peter. And they anointed the new grandchild with the same given name. So he ended up with the double, the double use of it. The family then built a church in Cairo to honor the martyred patriarch. And on his tomb are these words. God is my witness that I served my country to the best of my ability. Now, Boutros Galli has spoken about his past. And this is where the, where the Meisler piece really intrigued me. He said, for a boy to grow up with such things creates an impact. I felt I would betray the tradition of our family if I didn't play a political role. So now I understand him a little better. You see, if you have a tradition of setting your face towards heaven, then my advice to you today is to keep your gaze resolute. And if you don't have a tradition, if you have no direction today, begin one. Look in a good direction. Follow someone who is worth following. Find something that is ultimate and go after it. And you will find no greater reality than the reality of who Jesus Christ is and what he offers those who love and fear him. You see, my text today offers such an inspiring portrait of Jesus. His mission is far from over in Luke chapter 9. Only chapter 9. I think there's 24 chapters in that book. You're not even, you're, you're not even into the, the most important things we consider Luke's gospel to be about. Jesus has a long ways to go. So many people to touch. So many people to heal. So many battles to fight. So many teachings to, to deliver. So many days of giving the disciples lessons about their tomorrow. But even at this point, heaven beckoned him. It's always in his view. He knows the time is coming when he's going to be received up. He knows where he came from and he knew where he was going. There's a major stop along the way that would be set against the city of Jerusalem. He knows he's got a deathly appointment there. There would be betrayal there and confrontation. There would be an arrest in the garden, a mockery of a trial. There would be a denial by one of his close followers. He would receive a severe beating and finally a brutal execution and then be placed in a borrowed tomb. But heaven already beckoned him. Jesus knew that even Jerusalem would not be the ultimate stop for him. It would not be his end. Three days in the tomb and the Spirit of God would resurrect his body before corruption could ever take him in its grasp. The door of the tomb would be opened wide and a living Lord would walk out. He knew where he was going to. Where are our eyes today? Where are your eyes? On what does your gaze settle? What's your hope? A long life, a good retirement, creature comforts? Are you earthbound? Ultimately, are you destined for glory? See, Christ headed for Jerusalem because by going there, each of us could share in what he would create and what he would do there.
when I see Jesus going to Jerusalem, I'm so thankful. Because what he accomplishes in Jerusalem makes it possible for me today to understand and know and put my hope in a gospel that opens the way to God. It should not be surprising that out of, out of pastoral experience comes an observation about, about direction. Practically every person I've ever led to the Lord has, has received a version of what I want to close with today. And I'll close and we'll go to communion in just a few, a few moments. There was a time in our lives when our direction was away from God. We lived in darkness, the scripture tells us. And in his love, God determined to bring us back to him, to reconcile. He called us with the loving tones of the gospel. And amazed by his grace and touched by it, we stopped and looked in the direction of Calvary. And from Calvary flowed the warmth of the love of God that was like warm sun on the face of a cold traveler. touch of God's love compelled us to turn. You see how direction plays a part here? The touch of God's love compels us to turn more towards Him as the chill left our lives. And the more we turn towards God, the more we feel the power of His love. And it's not long before we're facing Him to gather more of His presence and almost without realizing Him, we begin to walk in the direction of the powerful beams that come from Him. There are times when, like David, we stray from the path and he's hidden by our own clouds and obscured by our lack of vision of him. But the warmth of God's love drew David back. It drew the prodigal back and it draws us back. Every degree of turning that we show towards God brings us closer. And we long for the heavenly rays that thaw the frost from our souls and pull us towards home. And it's no wonder to me that the word repent really means to turn. It's the finest meaning you can find of it. The closer we get to him, the more we feel the power of his presence. We've been going through somewhat of a little heat wave, haven't we? It's been muggy. It's been... It's been close. Humid. Sometimes tough to sleep. You know, at our place, there are fans on bus. Two of them. Non-stop, just blasting you. I don't know if it's the fans, the noise of the fans that's keeping me awake, or the humidity. But maybe you're a little cold in your experience today, and you need to feel the warmth of Christ flooding through your being. At times we need that, need that knowledge. There's times that we need to look at the way we are going and resolutely set our face towards our actual goal. And maybe you're here today and you need a complete change of direction. Maybe the direction you're going in is not the one you ought to be going in. You need brand new, brand new direction. It's not about going to church, even though that becomes a part of it. It's about setting your face towards God. 
It's about receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior and beginning to put your trust in what he did on your behalf on the cross. And embracing him as the one who never leaves us nor forsakes us and always takes us in a direction that is good. You know what I found? That when you begin walking towards God, you take a direction that feels so good because it is the only way that really leads you home. All other directions will be wrong directions. The direction that I choose will be a wrong direction. The direction that he chooses for me is the only way that I will ever spend eternity in his presence.